now arriving downtown Santa Monica Station. Hey Adam, it's time for Notes on Your Notes. I'm Adam Lesser. And I'm Joshua Townsend Zellner. Welcome to Notes on Your Notes, a podcast about the creative process and storytelling. Joshua, Joshua, you're headed Adam, up to San Francisco today? I'm off to San Francisco today, and I have a special gift in my carry-on baggage for my, not my carry-on, on my check baggage for my nephew. I, I did notice that you were checking bags for a 48-hour trip, and I was wondering what was going on. <laughs> well, when you have a nephew, you know, yeah. nothing's too good for... Nothing's too good for Raku. Raku, Yeah. So I'm excited, Eric Raku. Um, Do you try to brainwash so, him? I'm just curious. Like, I wouldn't. I wouldn't say brainwash. I would just say influence. Okay, so definitely, he is he getting a dehydrator? What's what's Raku getting for his eighth birthday? <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, Adam, you're too good at this game. I just want to know, it's, like, at one point, does Raku get a dehydrator, or does Star already yeah. have one? The starter he has two, but uh, but that's beside the point. No, he needs his own on his tenth birthday. That's right. Well, certainly know, for college for the ladies. <laughs> he gets a nine tray then. Yeah. Um, no, the reason I'm laughing is because that's a, because he loves dehydrated. So I take young Thai cocos and I scrape them and and then I dehydrate them. Yeah. And uh, and he loves it. And so I just made him three trays of. And so I'm I'm packing that. And so it's so funny you say dehydrator. Uncle Josh so to the he, rescue. Yeah, that's right. And then so he's going to get three trays of, de- of young Thai coconut meat dehydrated fresh. So, you know, so it's it's not like crispy. It's just like sort of soft, but dehydrated. Oh, nice. Soft. Yeah, he loves it like that. And then um, and then I'm also, uh, for his birthday that I'm late on, I got him this really fun thing. Remember when you were um, growing up and you went to like summer things and you had those three-legged races with the gunny sacks? Yeah. So I got him. I got him two gunny sacks. Oh, nice! So he and his friends can race. Uh huh. Or they can do stuff like put the other one in there and tie it around and carry the other one. Yeah. For yeah, the yeah, less yeah. less nice children. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Three three legged race where you can put your whole body in and then do the jumping race thing. But they're brand new, and of course they're from a cacao factory, so they're the they're stamped with like cacao. Oh, they're real stuff. like real burlap. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah! Real gunny sacks. How did like, you? Can like, I just ask a question? How did you get a uh, burlap sack from the cacao factory? Just a little question. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> You're like, finally, I'm glad someone has asked me that question. <laughs> so I went and got, um, you know, um, I went to, I did my research. I found a cacao uh, store that had interesting, you know, 85% and higher cacao bars, and they also had cacao sacks. And so I, oh, I've so I bought and them. And they they hooked you up. Mm-hmm. How much product did you have to buy, and like, what, how long did you have to develop that relationship to make that request? Oh, Adam, you're so much fun. Like, just just exactly. give me the time. Are we talking in years or months? It was months, but if I, I, I figured I dropped a couple hundred dollars on bars, which is like a month's supply. A couple hundred dollars? Yeah. Oh, so I've been having anxiety about uh, chocolate buying, and I wanted to ask you, actually. So I found this bar I really like, but it's got, yeah. I think, soy lecithin in it. And it's so creamy, and I have to think that that's, that that yeah. has a part of it. It's eighty-eight percent cacao. 
you know, because I went through that period and I mostly, you know, I mostly don't eat sugar. And so, mm-hmm. but my sister harassed, my sister argued with me and said that the sugar content in a 90% cacao bar is so minimal that I should get over myself. Yeah, she's right. So, thank you. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> hey, Adam's sister, you're right. Okay. Uh-huh. Um, and, but it just, yeah, I really like it. It's kind of like, but I know that the hardcore cacaoans look down upon adding, because they add that soy less than the creamy it, right? To give it sort of an additional fat content. Well, the key word here is emulsify. It's 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 an emulsifier, so it it brings it all together. Because you can still use creamy or, or whatever as cacao butter, and cacao butter is more expensive. It's true, but um, but that's why they use soy lecithin. Well, this is a delicious bar. I think it's the title is. I think the brand is Endangered Species. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. and uh, I really like it. It's really creamy. Although I have to. Um, I have to give a shout out to the folks at Pump Street. I've been there. It's 100%. And they managed to give a lot of, it's bold. It's a bold, you know, a lot of those 100% bars can really go wrong if you're not careful. That, that's what separates the men from the boys. Can I say that in the politically correct world? But that's what really separates people, uh, companies from companies because you can mask a lot in your 72s and your, even your 85s. But when you get start, start cresting the 95 to 100 realm, then you're really talking about being in process. Yeah. You know, it's like, I like, I like cacao like, like I like my chocolate. I like chocolate like I like my comedy, you know, dark. (laughs) Like that. Well, that's pretty good. That was good. That was a a nice touch. (laughs) That was a nice touch. All right, well, it's weird. I had to, it's like, I had to express my shame about my chocolate buying. I'm not going to tell Harold. Oh, no. I I will not tell Harold. Harold is one of the secret folks who runs original beans in germany and they honestly make an amazing 100 percent cacao bar we had him mm. on the show and mm-hmm. uh he i think has some strong feelings about you know because the other the other no-no mm-hmm. is uh adding vanilla extract that's basically like putting an std in your cacao bar <laughs> For the, for, for the purists, yes. Uh, but I, I'm okay with having You're okay with a little vanilla cake. in there? All right, Josh, I'm surprised. I, especially if the vanilla bean is, is grown on the same uh, uh, tree as that the bean came from. Because I feel like there's a symbiotic relationship between cacao and, and vanilla, which there is. Actually, they're both grown in the same uh, uh, latitude. So what, you don't mean the same tree, you mean like the same farm, as long as they come. No, I mean, no, the, the vine, the vanilla bean has to grow on, a, it grows on a vine. Uh-huh. And sometimes what they do is, is they attach the vine to the cacao tree. Uh-huh. So that the tree and the vine uh-huh. are growing together and there's a symbiotic relationship at that point. Oh, wow. And then I, and then I feel like it's like, it's like brother, sister, how could you take them apart? You know what I mean? Has anybody done that? <laughs> I, I, seriously, I, I've done it because uh, Sharky... Uh, uh, oh gosh, <laughs> I'm dropping names now. Sharky, which is uh, a cacao, one of the king of cacaos on on the Big Island of Hawaii. Uh-huh. I went to his farm, and he grows his his uh, vanilla beans and his uh, cacao side by side. This guy is a real hero. And so, so you know what this brings me though to because we're being hyper detail here, which I love. Yeah. But did you see? Did you see how much awareness we're bringing to the world of cacao? Uh, yeah. Mostly because yeah. you're capable of doing that. <laughs> <laughs> Not like in a negative way. I mean, like, that's... Yeah. 
in a, in a fun I don't know way, what right? I can talk about. Like, <laughs> the Lakers, the Lakers lineup in 1987 on their winning NBA basketball team. <laughs> or, or the I was NBA, like, Cooper the... coming off the bench was amazing. <laughs> Defensive player of the year. Sorry. <laughs> Yeah, the Lakers have like the longest winning streak in the NBA history of right of championships in a row. Uh, or, or, no, or did someone, did someone usurp that? No, they have. I think they've got 17 titles. I'd have to fact check that. That's them and the Celtics always neck and neck for most titles ever. But not the titles. I'm talking about the ones like in a row, like in a streak without breaking it. No. I thought the Lakers still the Lakers, maintained that. The Lakers did three in a row between 2000 and 2002, but. There are arguments in basketball about the the modern and the and the old era in basketball, oh, like basically oh. post the ABA and NBA merger in I think 1980. But Bill Russell was a, f- a famous Boston Celtic in the 1960s, and I'd have to check, but I'm pretty sure he won eight titles. I could be wrong. Uh, but people, there were fewer teams, and there are arguments, you know, about whether you count that, whether you count Russell, how does he measure up? It's a complicated thing, and it it goes back to this issue I think about a lot, which is like, <laughs> you think about cacao, I think about this, which is, that, you know, as competition increases, as training improves, as nutrition increases, how do we measure athletes from like 50 years ago? Because we don't actually know how good they would have been, you know? Even Larry Bird, who was a Boston Celtic in the 80s, was amazing. But, like, mm-hmm. he was still, like, drinking beer and eating, like, you know, probably, like, fried chicken mm-hmm. and not, and, like, doing weird. Th- like, the famous story about Bird is that he injured his back paving his mother's driveway in Indiana in 19, I think, 85 or 86, which no modern athlete would ever do. And that actually significantly impacted his career. So it's like, mm. but that back then, you know, basketball players didn't make $40 million a year, you know, like, mm-hmm. so we don't know. Mm. And so how do you measure, how do you measure performance from another era? So I'm glad we talked about that. But yes. Yeah, so. Well, you, but you really can't because it's all speculative at that point. And then that's like, you well, if someone else had broken the, the four minute mile, then wouldn't have this person done it too? I mean, then you kind of get into There's a, a psychological bit. component. You can't yeah. underestimate the psychological reality that yeah. if we know someone else has done x it's easier yeah. for us to do x right so then how do you how do you you couldn't justify all those people all the runners that could have run a four minute mile right. or broke the four minute mile before the anyway so yeah it gets so the answer to your question thing. is bill russell uh and the <laughs> and the 60s celtics i believe have exceeded my lakers okay god i hate i hate the celtics so much but <laughs> thank you for sharing sorry Adam. But see, but see, see how how like finally we're 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 shaving this down, and see how like how much awareness we have around this. This is exactly what you don't want to do at the beginning of your narratives. Do you see how seamlessly we just we just did that transition, 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 transition. transition. (laughs) We have really good windups, but but it's the payoffs is where it's at. do you, do you know what I mean? It's like it's like I think that's a, a common thing that that we as storytellers or people who do narratives in all forms have to be highly attuned to. So, I'm going to try to get at the flavor of what you're talking about. But basically, sure. we're talking about how self-aware a character can be at any point in a story. Yes. So, if the character trait that they're working with and their quote-unquote transformation, for example, is to become 
is to, let's say to deal with uh, how their smart over analytical mind gets them into trouble. How interesting how you came up with that yeah, one, there Adam. There you go. Thanks. Yeah. That's what I can do. <laughs> uh-huh. Uh, how would you set it up? Because I'm curious. Like, because what's the risk? The risk is they become too like heart centered, and they make that transformation, but they do it too early. Meaning, if that's where they start, mm-hmm. the counter the the counterpoint of it is like you don't want. The, where they're going to go to their transformation. So they become less analytical. They become more able to function in a relationship. They become more healed in their heart. Mm-hmm. This is mm-hmm. usually like a type of character. Like mm-hmm. this is the setup for the character in the social network. This is Mark Zuckerberg's character to some extent. Oh, okay. Good to know. Not I mean, you. Okay. Got not it. Me. Yeah. The character. I mean, right, if someone wants to see an example of this in story, yeah, mm-hmm. you have to be careful about where that you start that character. Yes. Yes. So there's two things that you're that you're talking about, and two things are playing out. Is one is the polarity, the polarity of, of the character, like where the character starts. Like Scroo- I'll, I'll just use Scrooge, Christmas Carol, because it's real super easy. At the very beginning, he's super stingy, like tight, tight. Doesn't even like to burn candles. Doesn't like to write fire. No heat. Doesn't give the guy off Christmas, right? So he, really stingy. And at the end, he's giving everything away. So that's a high polarity, and that's what you want. Here's here's the, so sometimes people miss that, or they don't want to make him too stingy. Well, he's not. You know, he'll give him two days off, not three. And I'm like, come on, you're Scrooge. So you really have to push those limits. The other side of it is this, which is the character can't be too self-aware that they're stingy or the character can't be too self-aware of the negative impact of them being too smart or too analytical because it takes away because here's the thing is that human nature and audiences and everything else is very specific as long as i'm unconscious of something as long as i don't know i'm an innocent in that area and there's some room for forgiveness as soon as i be i become aware of it and that the audience knows that i'm aware of it then i'm less forgiving uh, yeah. Sorry, I'm less forgetting me. The audience is less forgiving. Yes, that's those are all amazing points because yeah, like it's most of the time in a story, your characters are coming to consciousness mm-hmm. and very slowly. And I would take it a step further. I think if we perceive that they're coming to their consciousness, not only are we less forgiving and less interested in them, or less sort of engaged, mm-hmm. uh, but we also are sort of like. A, why aren't they changing? Yes. And also, we kind of already, it's like we already know where things are going a little bit. You know, it's like, it's hard to say, because basically what you're saying is don't start, be mindful throughout your story of where both the awareness of the of the character f- misbehavior, fault, tragic fault, tra- what's it called? Tragic flaw. Flaw. Classical, flaw. classical drama. Um one thing is the awareness, but the other thing is the actual change around it. And the behavioral change and how aware the character is of it. So, so it's not to say that once the character becomes aware of it, that the character has to change that behavior, because that, that's not human either. But what we, and this is what we, love to, what we love to see, is the character becoming aware of it, of the misbehavior, knowing it, and then, then they're at an active choice point. Go listen to our choice point episode. Mm. They're at an active choice point of whether they actually execute on that new behavior or if they fall back. And again, in classic storytelling, you would see the character struggle with the new behavior, fail, struggle with the new behavior, fail, and then, right. and then actually um, 
do it. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I'm just going to emphasize one other thing to drive home one other thing you said, which is that they actually also, they cannot, they have to have room to run in the shift of that behavior. Otherwise, yeah. we're checked out. Mm -hmm. And you can look at our episode on character transformation and felt the difference. We talk about the difference between film and TV, but this is the major difference between film and television. In film, if it's a transformative story, so not like a Marvel superhero story, but like a, usually a dramatic, comedic, something where there's a character change. Rom-coms are perfect examples, typically. Uh, they have to start somewhere that they can then change from. And if mm -hmm. the change comes too soon, the story mm -hmm. is essentially over. Whereas mm -hmm. in television, the characters essentially never get over their misbehavior. Don Draper is always a womanizing man who's afraid of his past, who uh, continues to make self-destructive decisions, right? Mm -hmm. Walter White is always uh, sort of like a drug dealing guy who never felt like he got his deserve in the world and is angry. Because if they change from that, the writers have a problem typically in that they don't know what to do then. Like, where do you write from? Like, if the character totally changes like that, Mm -hmm. This is also why I think TV is so engaging because it's so close to life. You know, it's like, mm -hmm. you know, real transformation takes whatever the decade that Mad Men ran, you know, you know, that takes it takes 10 seasons to have a real transformation right, in life. Right. And it's why it's so interesting. And this is also Adam. That was a joke. It takes 10 seasons to have a transformation in life. It takes more than that 10 was, seasons. Maybe 12 seasons. It takes 12. <laughs> oh, <laughs> Several lifetimes. Uh huh. Yes. I feel like there's a bad joke coming out here. How many autumns does it take to change your misbehavior? Um, Ooh. Uh, and the final thing I was saying, this is why there's so much pressure on TV shows and TV writers to make those final episodes, the finales at the end of the entire run, so mm -hmm. um, satisfying and amazing to the audience <laughs> because we finally are at that moment where we've watched 70 hours of this character and we want something to show us that of where they're heading in life and what changes happened. Mm -hmm. And if you don't give it to the audience after that investment, they go bananas. And we saw this in the Sopranos mm -hmm. and we've seen this in other shows where it's just like, they really want to know like, and it's usually a choice point. It's a choice that the character has to make at the end of, do they, you mm -hmm. know, do they finally leave the life they're in? Do they, you know, whatever it is, do they finally make a different choice that's been vexing them for seven seasons or eight seasons? So we, we watch to like that. I, I mean, that is why, because finally they're usually that final season for TV is usually when they're trying to do more character transformation. That's a really that's a really great noticing. Yeah, that's fantastic. It's true. And all that pressure, all that pressure is on that last episode. And it becomes an event and then everyone wants to watch it because everyone knows it's the last episode. Yeah. It's like it's like it's like walking a girl to her front door after the first date, you know, there's that pressure. Pressure. Yeah. Pressure performed at a certain level. So but so, but he, here's one thing I'd like to share, and this is really critical, is that if, if you're working on that piece and you want to make sure your character's not too aware, too smart, too this, too that, and that in your narrative, it doesn't make it, to me, it doesn't make a difference, long form, short form, is that you want to go through your script and you want to see, or your manuscript, your narrative, you want to see where the major shifts in consciousness are in your uh, character 
because that's when that's when they can no longer go back. And if they do go back, which which is human again, and you want to to some degree, but but we the audience now know that they know. And that has and that has to impact cause and effect. That has to impact their future choice choices. So I'm just kind of curious from your perspective because I think this is a really subtle point that you understand that not a lot of people get is that once Scrooge knows that he's a miser and he won't help, yeah. you know, any of these, he's yeah. he's self-absorbed. Okay. Yeah. So once mm-hmm. he's aware, we as an mm-hmm. audience change how we see him. Yes. Okay. From that moment on, well, I guess there are two points. It's like writing the scenes that lead to self-awareness super mm-hmm. important, right? The, mm-hmm. What are the relationships mm-hmm. that are going to transform him, open his heart? Mm-hmm. So you have that, mm-hmm. which is really hard. In, in screenwriting, that's usually the second act. Mm-hmm. That whole middle, middle 60 minutes of a film is them coming to the awareness and, and, and getting to that transformation. Now, they haven't transformed yet. They've just seen it, right? Mm-hmm. right? And then the transformation mm-hmm. usually comes the end of the second act into the third act, the resolution. These are, I hate talking in structural terms, but this is kind of how the form of film works. Yeah. Um, so the, the third act is the final 30 minutes, usually of a movie. And I'm just kind of curious, how much time or story world do you think a writer has once they've shown a character is aware of their flaw? The, the, the pain they're causing themselves or others? Well, th- there, is no, there is no set number. But I, let's go back to Christmas Carol because it's such a classic and it's so easy to identify. And he, did a, he did a good job. Basically, you have, you have the... Intro, you have the mm, he falls asleep. You know, we, we, we establish the misbehavior. I'm cutting to the big picture stuff. Uh, we identify the storyline. We have the setup. Then... He falls asleep, and then he has his first business partner, which is basically the intro, giving backstory of of what's about to happen, and then he goes away, and then he literally does one, two, and three, past, present, and future, and so they the, each ghost that visits him chips away at it, and the third one, which is the future, um, is the one that gives him the big the big shift. There's incremental shift in one and two, but in three is the payoff. So then from the time he freaks out and goes back to sleep to the time he wakes up, he's at choice point of he's in fear. Did I miss Christmas Day? All that other stuff. So he has, he has a ticking clock. I mean, it's classic. It's really good storytelling. He has a ticking clock that he has to fight against. And then we have to see that is this, is this new insight, is this new realization that he just went through all night, is he going to take it for real? And is he going to act on it? And how is it going to be received? And that's, you know, that's what we're going to watch. And in that narrative, they, they usually do that in like the last eight to ten minutes because there's, there's the action that he takes, which is to buy everything. And then he has the, the ripple effect when he gets it back. And then, and then we need to see something that's uncommon. <laughs> Here we go. Thank you for asking that, Adam. Then what we need to do is we actually need to see something that's unconscious that comes that character's way. And they behave in the new way, but they're not conscious that they're doing it. Oh, so he needs to be challenged again. Like I, I don't need, if I saw a Christmas Carol, it's been a long time ago, but, yeah. uh, but something needs to challenge the character. Like he needs to be confronted with, oh, do I give this employee a Christmas bonus? Something that's going to push upon the old, yes, the old trait. Mm-hmm. 
Yes. But you're adding something here, which is you're also saying that they should not be conscious of that. Right. They should not be conscious of it. It needs to come in to them without preparation, without pre-thought. So in other words, he's going there with, you know, 50 pounds of chicken and whatever else, goulash and apple strudel or whatever, and he's dropping it off. That's something that he's choosing to do, and he's in control of that. However, if someone, if the, the unconscious behavior would be just as he's rushing in the door, he sees an older woman who's, who's struggling, he holds the door open for her. That's not something that he's consciously planning and can execute on. It's something, it shows that the behavior is now real. That's what we're looking for as an audience. We want to see that the behavior is real, not just a one-off. Right. It's not just this one conscious decision, like they make this one thing mm-hmm. like i'm going to help this one person it has to almost just become who they are yes and, and we want to see evidence of that it, 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 will, it won't be satisfying to us as an audience until we see something more authentic and that's why i say unconscious or something that, that it's not planned gotcha yeah that's a that's a that's a good point and the final thing i'll just say is that like you know just to to summarize like what Josh saying a little bit, which is that the, the problem you often see in story, like the, the practical issue is that they get to that point too early or there are mm-hmm. signs that they're getting to that point too early. Mm-hmm. And I think sometimes this happens because writing that middle part of your story where they're struggling and they're going back and forth is really the hardest part for a lot of people mm-hmm. of writing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You're figuring out the scenes and the characters and all the setups that make it so that the character could make another choice to change, but they choose not to. Like all those things mm-hmm. are, uh, those are sort of the, 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 yeah, it's the hard work. It really feels like the hard work for me anytime I sit down to write. Uh, and it's why like, I think writing for writing in television is kind of an interesting training for a lot of people because that's all you really do in television. If you think What's- about it for a second, all you're doing in TV is writing that middle part of a film. Like all you're doing in TV on every episode over and over and over over. again, Mm -hmm. you're having Don Draper misbehave over again. You're having, giving him tiny moments of scenes where you think, oh, maybe he'll do something different. Maybe this is the moment he realizes that cheating is, or the alcohol is too much for him. Mm-hmm. And we have to we have to almost believe it a little bit. We have to. There's some part of that. I say, maybe he could do something different here for a little bit, but he doesn't, right? You know, I mean, I, I think in TV, not really, but you know. And I think like that's why you know that's why the trend in television is to hire playwrights. You know, mm-hmm. they're hiring mm-hmm. all of these playwrights coming out of Juilliard are going to work in TV. People like. Jessica Goldberg, who wrote The Path, which is a, a show I love. It's a beautiful pilot. She's a playwright, and she went to write for TV because that's what TV is, and that's what theater is. It's like characters struggling over and over again in scene with the mm-hmm. hardest part of themselves. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. I didn't realize that they were, they were moving it towards uh, playwrights. And uh, I mean, and, and there are a lot form. of, like, I mean, I don't want to say everyone, but uh, Bo Williman, who did... Uh, House of Cards wrote a a play I actually saw when it first came out before he was famous called Farragut North, which mm-hmm. then became the film The Ides of March with I think uh, oh. George Clooney was in. But he was writing plays before 
he then went on to do House of Cards. You know, like some of them, you know, because certainly I'm not talking about CSI and episodic or procedurals. I'm talking about I'm right. talking about serialized TV where you're tracking a character over many years. You know, I, I do think you would know better. Than, I mean, I am not as an expert in, in plays as you in theater, but like there is a quality of writing for theater which translates to that kind of that kind of it's, writing. It's more it's more character driven and it's more dialogue driven. And TV is dialogue driven, and film is more of a visual medium in yeah, general. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And also, I just want to remind our our folks listening here that it's really important to put in those flags, put in those markers in your script, if it's short form or long form, of when of when the character uh, has a, a new level of awareness. Mm. And you're absolutely right. Is uh, TV is a great training ground, or I, sh- I didn't say TV, but long form. Long form is a great training ground. And there is a little bit of escalation though, because we as an audience member, it's like there's an old there's an old saying: establish and move on. So you establish the character trait, and you need to move on. So how you get out of that repetition? Because sometimes they say the second year, the second season is is challenging. Because the character still needs to be up-leveled their challenge. So in Breaking Bad, there's definitely an escalation between season two and season five. We see him ramping up and, and making his misbehavior stronger and stronger and more at risk and more challenging. and so Yeah, that's a great and point. More, and more complexity. So, yeah. It gets so worse. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it goes Sorry, worse. Was, what else? I was saying it gets worse before it gets better. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's kind of like and, hitting rock. And then bottom. there's like little, and there's like a little hope, and then and then the hope <laughs> gets taken away, just like life. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like addicts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you have dude. to bottom out. Oh my God, Adam, that's such a great analogy. I love that. Yeah, because otherwise, yeah. it's actually in a way less interesting to have it be a slow trajectory of change, because then we're like, oh. Oh, this person's slowly getting better. They're slowly getting better. And you're just like, that's not that interesting. <laughs> right. Yeah. 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 And, yeah. and that's the tricky part because that's why, we, that's why we're driven to story because we want to see the transformation, but we have to work in, in a condensed format. Otherwise, we, it's, it's, it's like watching, what do they call that? Slow TV where Denmark stopped everything and they watched a boat go by on TV. <laughs> I've heard about yeah. that. Cool. Yeah. Like, it's like, it's, I, love, I love that. But of course, it only happens in Europe. It doesn't happen in Alabama now, does it? Let's not pick on Alabama. Okay. <laughs> North Carolina yeah, let's just doesn't say happen American, in North Carolina. <laughs> American culture does not allow for boat watching. Boat watching, especially in Montana. Especially in Montana. Oh, oh, um, I didn't tell you. Tell me. Is, is this okay to tell you something on our show without telling you in person? Uh, it's going to be, let's get my live reaction. It's okay, a girl. Live reaction. Josh is having a girl. <laughs> it's a girl. You're so funny. Uh-huh. Um, we're confirmed Sunday, October 20th at OLOC, our second year anniversary, a big party. What's it called? Save your date? Save that date? Yeah, save the date. Save the date. Yeah, We're doing so it. It is a girl, and we've given birth to an anniversary party. Mm-hmm. Uh, she will include storytelling on stage, excellent uh-huh. vegan food, and uh-huh. downtown LA. Yeah. And Joshua I'm seeing, so it's going to be pretty amazing. I'm excited. Yeah, or, 100 episodes. Or, or, or maybe we're going to co-MC. I oh, think my God. That'd be kind of Co-MC. <laughs> oh, my God. So, yeah, so if, if everyone uh, can put that in your calendar right now, that would be fantastic. Um, Sunday, um, October 20th. What is it, about mm-hmm. 7 p.m.? 
Yeah, we'll probably... St- uh, I, no, I, yeah, the show's going to start at 7, but we need to have people start coming like around 6, 6.30. Oh, that's right. Sunday. Sunday supper. Yeah, Early. Sunday supper. Early, yeah. No but excuse. Sunday in L.A., no traffic excuses. We're turning two. I mean, that is so yeah, exciting. It's exciting. Oh, and the other thing is, is that, you know, um, I, I'm not trying to be overt, but just think 85% and higher for anyone who's coming who wants to bring a small, you know, small token. Of, small token we should do a Patreon but it's only payable in chocolate. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then, it, and then Harold can be like a special, you know, special um, sponsor, a special sponsor. Yeah. Harold, I will say is the only one who's sent us free chocolate. All so you other far. bums, all your other bums that we talk about and get free PR to, we get nothing from so far. But yeah, sen- I have hope. I'm sending this episode to endangered species. <laughs> Where's my chocolate? Sounds good. All right, save the date, October 20th. Wow, we're giving you 10 weeks notice. There's no excuse. Uh, you can like us on Facebook and, and inst- follow us on Instagram to get all of Josh's updates about upcoming episodes, teaching, classes, also uh, just really insightful posts about storytelling that could really help you in your artistic uh, process, your creative process. Uh, so that would be awesome. If you want us to do an episode about a specific question, email us, notesonyournotes at gmail.com. The music on the show is courtesy of Kevin McLeod, and the sound editing and design is courtesy of me. We will talk to you next week.